Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, in the entire park system? So who are these parks for and and what kind of residents are being prioritized? Hi, everyone. Today, we'll be discussing the global problem of housing affordability and intra-society income inequality. There has long been a consensus on what constitutes affordable housing in Canada. Spending more than 30% of your monthly income on housing and heat, water, and electricity means you're creeping into housing unaffordability, according to the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and Statistics Canada. And that leaves people to make tough choices about what's left of their income. Buy food, pay the utility bill, or get needed medicine for a child. It also means that they lack any cushion to make it through a rough patch, such as injury or job loss. Current food bank use, homelessness, and eviction trends reflect this reality. In Canada, about 3.3 million households, almost one in four, have housing costs above this affordability threshold. In Vancouver and Toronto, it's even worse. One third of households are coping with unaffordable housing. In a 2011 report, Stats Canada found that on average, people living in unaffordable housing spend more than half their incomes on shelter. The extra cost, beyond the affordable level threshold of 30%, was $510 a month, itself 20% of their income. Homeownership seems out of reach. A recent Stats Canada report found that the median price of homes in Greater Vancouver was more than nine times the median income. And a calculation by Point2 Homes, a real estate market website, estimates that millennials who set aside 20% of their incomes would take two decades to save enough for a down payment in Vancouver. A few reasons come to mind as causes for this unaffordability. One that has received some political attention is speculation. Houses and condos have become investments, not places to live. And in Vancouver or Toronto, the profits on those investments have become enormous. Many owners count on them as retirement savings, and few are willing to accept policies that would return the values of their properties to local income level norms. Taxes that target speculation, empty homes, and foreign owners seem to have had at least some of the intended impact in British Columbia. Purchases by foreign buyers dropped sharply after a tax was introduced in 2016. And price increases slowed and then dropped in Vancouver after BC speculation and vacancy tax and the city's empty home tax were introduced. But that is far from the complete picture. Of the 7 in 10, 68% of Canadians who do not currently own a home and do not feel that they will be able to afford one in their desired neighborhood, 26% said that their salary was not enough to save for a down payment. An average attached home in Vancouver cost $400,000 in 1995. By 2015, it was $1.8 million, a 450% increase. Meanwhile, average incomes in Vancouver increased only 14% in the same period. NDB leader Jagmeet Singh sums up this trend when he says, salaries aren't keeping up, but costs are rising. In his paper titled The Global Urban Housing Affordability Crisis, Stefan Vetstein discusses how this critical commentary confronts and explores the so far under-recognized and under-researched emergent global crisis of urban housing affordability and affordable housing provision. 
This crisis results from the fact that housing-related household expenses are rising faster than salary and wage increases in many urban centers around the world, a situation triggered by at least three global post-global financial crisis megatrends of accelerated reurbanization of capital and people, the provision of cheap credit, and the rise of intra-city inequality. Indeed, it is the world's 100 largest cities that capture two-thirds of McKinsey's Global Institute's affordability gap. The evidence is thus becoming overwhelming that this urban housing crisis is global in scope. Yet in contrast to the global financial crisis that originated in subprime finance housing stock in the USA and spread via global financial centers to countries and populations worldwide, this new global crisis emerges simultaneously across many metropolitan regions around the world. The reurbanization of capital and people has pushed up demand for housing. The provision of cheap money has facilitated extensive mortgage lending, and the rise of intra-city inequality has reduced the ability of lower socioeconomic households to pay, to pay growing housing and energy bills. While affordability concerns relate to both housing-related household expenses as well as net household incomes, policymaking communities, social advocates, business and the media have framed the problem overwhelmingly as an affordable housing challenge. Accordingly, the spotlight has been put almost everywhere on questions of how to release more land, build more homes and apartments, and re-regulate mortgage and rental markets rather than to deal with the more contentious issue of how to help households to earn salaries and wages in line with rising household expenses. As global inequality declines with between-country inequality and the convergence of median income, within-country income inequality is on the rise in many countries. Today, we're joined by our guest, Dr. Paul McGeezy, who is a professor of economics at the University of Ottawa since 2007. He's currently an associate director. He is currently an associate editor of the Journal of Economic Inequality. Previously, he has held positions at the University of Sherbrooke in Canada and at the VU Amsterdam in the, in the Netherlands. His main areas of research are socioeconomic health inequality measurement, the distributive impact of taxation and public pricing, and income inequality measurement. Very pleased to have you on with us. Um, so I know you worked with the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation to advance a different view for measuring housing affordability to express poverty-related housing problems. Could you maybe talk to us a, a bit about the methodology and what shortcomings in the existing measure were plugged? Um, I, I've worked in the past with uh, Duang Suda uh, Sorry, I don't. I have always have difficulty pronouncing her family name. Um, I call her Duang Suda. She's an analyst at CMHC. Um, she uh, contacted me a few years ago because they wanted to uh, start analyzing inequalities or uh, poverty, uh, housing-induced uh, poverty in Canada. So uh, I believe. Uh, the paper that we wrote together uh, was one of the first uh, at uh, CMHC tackling uh, this uh, issue using, uh, uh, I wouldn't say standard uh, poverty analysis, but a, a, a slight tweak in the standard uh, poverty uh, analysis. Um, there was... A, 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 one of the measurement difficulties, I'm, I'm trying to answer your question. I'm sorry if uh, uh, I'm um, uh, 
I, I'm not clear, and please feel free to interrupt me if you need uh, more clarification. Yeah. One of the, of the difficulty we face uh, when we compare uh, poverty or inequality uh, is how do you compare households of uh, different composition? So how do you compare, let's say, um, uh, singles with uh, a family of uh, uh, one parent, two kids, or a family of two parents, one kids. Um, and typically uh, what the analysts do, uh, they use what we call an equivalent scale. So it's a kind of formula that transform uh, the spending uh, of a family of four into a, an equivalent spending for a single person. And uh, when we think of... Uh, inequality in housing or uh, uh, or uh, housing-induced poverty. So the idea of housing-induced poverty is once you paid for your housing spending that may be constrained depending on where you, mm -hmm. you live, then what remains for the all the other spending, food, clothing, transportation, and other things. Uh, then uh, in, in the paper that we wrote, I think it's two years ago, we were looking at what were the determinant of uh, this housing-induced poverty. And of course, uh, when you use these standard equivalent scale that transform, let's say, the income or the expenditures of a family of four into a family of, uh, into uh, an equivalent spending for a single, uh, then we account for some economy of scale. Of course, it doesn't cost twice as much to uh, pay for your housing if you're uh, uh, if you're two than if you you live alone. Uh, but these equivalent scale are uh, estimated or used for uh, let's say total spending. And when you look at a particular uh, component of spending, like housing or food or clothing, then it, it, the 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 issue is. Um, should we use the same equivalent scale? Are the economies of scale in clothing the same than uh, in housing? And, and then the answer is quite obvious because uh, if you think uh, a family with one parent and one kid doesn't need twice as much uh, uh, to spend on housing compared to a single person, but if you think of clothing, then it can be the uh, totally the opposite. Um, uh, I can, if I don't have a lot of income, I can keep the same clothing for for a few years. If you have a kid, this doesn't work. So probably you need at least twice as much if you're one parent mm -hmm. and one kid. And, and this is a difficulty that has not been tackled yet. And uh, we're working with the CMHC analyst uh, right now to, to try to figure out how, how to do this. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I really liked when I was reading um, the the paper that you folks wrote, like the empirical findings, um, that that you actually like not just devise the measure, you actually apply it on data, and then you have some empirical findings about which uh, subpopulations they have like higher prevalence of hardship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, essentially, if I remember well, because uh, I, I, I write, uh, I have other research projects, but I, I think the main vulnerable, vulnerable group was immigrants, if I remember well, in that paper. Um, uh, Housing-induced poverty is higher among immigrants, even when you control uh, for demographic characteristics. Uh, 
So if you look at the demographic characteristics of immigrant um, and you match them with the demographic characteristics of non-immigrant, they should be uh, less prone to housing-induced poverty than the rest of the population. They're uh, on uh, not on average, but the distribution of their education is better than non-Canadian. It should be more favorable, so uh, they, they should have better uh, market outcome, but it's not the case. Yeah. Um, so so when, it, when I was reading this, I was, I was kind of curious about, and I'm... I'm sure this would be probably constrained by data restrictions. Would, would Was this analysis, did it account for race in any way when we're talking about demographics? Um, we didn't do it because we didn't have enough uh, uh, information to do it. Uh, I, I was not the person working uh, in details mm -hmm. with the data on that project, so I don't remember very well, but if we didn't uh, tackle the issue of race, it's because it was not feasible with the data because we would have certainly done that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of like turn away from housing affordability and kind of talk about the more global issue of income inequality, because I think housing affordability, it's it's impossible to talk about it without also talking about income equality. To that effect, I, I know you've done some work in the Middle East. Um, so, I so I want to I want to talk a bit more about you know for example what an inequality trap is. Um, so, define in you know like Arab countries. Um, if we think of uh, Arab countries, so that um, uh, let, let me go back to the Arab mm. Spring. So, two thousand eleven, it started in Tunisia. Uh, and you probably all remember well that um, um, all started with a young uh, man uh, who was arrested because he was trying to sell um, uh, fruits or vegetables. I don't remember exactly what, but he was arrested because he didn't have the proper uh, license to do it. Uh, but the guy was just trying to, 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 to make a living. So uh, then he set himself on fire. This is a, a, an individual story, but this individual story had social implications. So people got angry at the government and they toppled the Ben Ali uh, government uh, at that time. Um, and it had effects on other Arab countries. So it spread it to Egypt uh, and we saw the end of the Mubarak government and spread it also in other Arab countries, and it had different implications in different countries. But the main, um, so um, many of the protesters were talking about Hari, uh, freedom, but others, uh, and other, another claim was a reduction of inequality. So there was some, it tackled some interests from international institutions to look at inequality in the Arab region, and the main finding is that Compared to other regions of the world, the Arab countries uh, are less unequal, or they're not that unequal, and inequality trends in the region were going down. So this is what they were uh, uh, discovering from the data using a standard uh, inequality estimation techniques. And they called it the Arab inequality puzzle because there was a claim in the society mm -hmm. Uh, about inequality, but uh, they didn't find um, the the data was not matching the, the 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 social claim, and it's called a puzzle because 
if uh, if one person is talking about uh, inequality, then it's a, a, an individual problem. If everyone is talking about inequality, then it's a social problem. So they wanted to find what is this root of uh, um, inequality. And one of the uh, answer or one of the piece of the puzzle came from um, uh, Lydia Aswad, uh, who worked uh, with Thomas Piketty uh, on um, and. and, and and you know, Piketty's work is on the top of the distribution. It's always on the top of the mm-hmm. distribution. Uh, so um, together with Lydia Aswad, uh, they looked at uh, fiscal data uh, when they were able to obtain uh, these data from uh, Arab countries. They look at Forbes and all different uh, source sources of uh, information. And then they found that if you... Uh, look at the top of the distributions. Uh, Arab countries uh, are probably one of the most unequal. Uh, the, the Arab region is one of the most unequal uh, region uh, in the world. Um, so this is one piece of the puzzle. And, and just to give you a slight idea, I have some uh, colleagues from uh, the Economic and Social Commission uh, for Western Asia of uh, the United Nations who have estimated what would be the tax rate that we should impose on the top 10% of the wealth distribution to totally eliminate uh, uh, poverty in Arab countries. Um, I remember the exact number for for Lebanon. Uh, In Lebanon, for instance, if you impose a tax rate and listen carefully what is the rate, uh, before the COVID and the economic crisis, it would have been 0.3% of tax rate. And after the COVID, 0.4%, you would have enough resources to totally eliminate poverty in Lebanon. And we're talking a country uh, where uh, half of the population have uh, f- uh, fell under the poverty line. So uh, it's an uh, indecent level of inequality in that region. Why do you think that taxes aren't at <laughs> very low in, in Canada? You know, people complain about our, our tax rates and, you know, it's it's they're implemented. So to not have, you know, them at, at such a slight degree to be implemented, that seems crazy to me. Is it, you know, obviously political reasons would be why? Uh, uh, I'm not sure I understand your question. So, so okay, okay, can you repeat? Sorry. Uh, um, so it, it seems kind of ludicrous to me that that's not something that, that's being implemented. So it would be more of like a political difference between, you know, Canada and, and, and Lebanon, because here, you know, we pay taxes that are, that are quite high and people don't like it, but we... We still pay them. Um, so, is there a reason why there is such a disconnect? Um, I, I think this uh, the censor the censor uh, should be asked to a political scientist. It's okay. a, a political issue. I I, yeah. I can give you some uh, hint of my opinion. Uh, let's say my uh, educated guess on <laughs> on this. Uh, the, the economic system in the two countries, uh, or it's true uh, for any countries in the Western Hemisphere and uh, in Arab countries. So let's compare these um, 
to group of countries. So in Arab countries, they have what we call a system that we can label as crony capitalism. So uh, you have free, uh, let's say free, it's not free markets, it's private markets, but essentially uh, the, the, the business uh, the business sector and the political sector are kind of uh, mingled together so those are essentially the same person and uh, uh, it's particularly true in 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 the case of Lebanon so uh, you would see things like the prime minister giving a contract a government contract to its own private company and this would be considered um, uh, normal, uh, and we're, uh, we're uh, centuries away from uh, forty thousand uh, dollars from a private charity. Uh, I, I'm not saying that uh, uh, corruption in Canada is okay, but you, you can compare the level of corruption in the other countries. It just gives the contract uh, directly to its own company. They use uh, government resources like their private. Uh, uh, resources. Um, just think of uh, Hariri, the one that everybody likes in in Lebanon. The one, the not um, not the actual Hariri, but the the president who, who, who was killed in two thousand five. Uh, he essentially uh, nationalized downtown the downtown area of Beirut uh, after the war. So taking it away from uh, the people who were the legitimate owners. And he gave it to his private company, Solidaire. So <laughs> this is the kind of things that you see it's in such country. This will be unthinkable in Canada. So uh, uh, someone will end up in jail doing something like this. Um, I'm just going to jump right in. Sorry, Professor McDeasy, for being a little bit late. Um, but I'm actually curious to know a little bit more about the discussion on the flip side. So in Canada, the um, sort of general rule um, when rolling out affordable housing units um, with the CMHC, for example, at the federal level, it's 80% generally is um, what the status quo is in terms of determining whether um a home is affordable or not. I'm curious to know if um, if that's a policy that sort of mirrored um, in Arab countries, um, or if there are um, programs in place that provide affordable rental units and, and um, housing units for those who may be in need of it. Um, I know that in um, Japan, for example, they're one of the uh, global leaders for affordable housing um uh, rollouts and uh, most units you can rent that are pretty decent for about eight hundred dollars to a, like a thousand dollars a month, um, which would be considered affordable considering that in Canada here I think in twenty eighteen the average rent uh, rental cost in Toronto is about twenty two hundred a month. Um, so I'm just curious to know if you have any sort of insight to add on that. Uh, no, I don't have any information on what kind of programs. Uh are in place in all our countries i i i i guess because i have some ideas of the extent of government intervention that there's probably uh, in most countries no program uh, at all right um i think i think Brittany's point kind of like touched on why people in maybe lebanon were like less likely to pay taxes i think i think kind of like touches on the issue of um, trust in public institutions. I know you've done some work on that. If you could maybe talk a bit about that. 
Um, yeah, uh, actually, uh, the, the the funny thing is, if you talk to Lebanese and even uh, uh, the poorest segment of the population, they will be against mm-hmm. taxation because they see taxation, and, and this is uh, what you, you just uh, highlighted, they see taxation as taking resources away from them with a government that doesn't uh, deliver any service to to its population and it's even worse for the poorest segment of the population so it's it's essentially they see taxation as taking money away from the population and giving it to uh, politicians so they can um, distribute it among themselves and among their uh, let's say uh, close uh, network so there is a lack of trust uh, in uh, in the government and this lack of trust make it makes it I think impossible to implement high level of taxation. It uh, so all the revolution. I, I I don't know if you 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 have followed uh, closely what happened in Lebanon, but last October there was a, a kind of peaceful revolution in Lebanon. People uh, took up the streets, and it was essentially because the government decided to implement a tax uh, on WhatsApp. And uh, the, the, it's it's not just because of that, but the, 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 let's say the the thing that started the, the, the revolt was a tax on WhatsApp because uh, they see taxation as a way of taking uh, resources away from the population, and they, they they cannot see they don't have trust in the government, so they they, um, they cannot see that the, they cannot figure out that the government could do something good with this particularly in that country you don't have electricity 24 hours a day so people need to uh, have private generators to to compensate for uh, uh, lack of electricity from the public uh, uh, utilities and uh, infrastructures are crumbling and yeah so they they they, they don't see a government that offers them uh, services and i believe that it will be impossible or politically impossible to uh, implement uh, 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 good levels of taxation before having a government that starts spending let's say on schooling on healthcare. Uh, on infrastructure and before a few years where the population sees that uh, a new government or a new political system is actually working uh, for the population. That's very interesting. Um, So I I remember reading something about seeing seeing some graphs about how, you know, even high or like progressive taxation doesn't mean a more equal society. It's having transfers or redistribution policies which actually actually leads to um, societies which are which have more um, within within country lesser inequality. Um, to that effect, I think you've done some analysis of you know the distributional impact of subsidy reform on e- in Egypt. Um, I didn't work in details mm-hmm. on Egypt, but I, I I've looked at subsidy reform uh, in Egypt. Um, so uh, and in, in the Arab world in general, so uh, there was a kind of social contract in, in uh, the Arab region uh, uh, where um, dictators or other form of government would give back uh, some um, uh, part of their uh, rent extraction to the population in form of um, 
subsidies on some items. So there were subsidies on food and subsidies on uh, uh, energy items. Um, and the level of spending on, let's say, of, uh, 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 fuel energy in Egypt would be many times uh, the level of spending on education and health together, uh, which doesn't make any sense. And if you look at the distribution, uh, when you subsidize, let's say, uh, 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 fuel for your for private cars, so you need a private car to benefit from uh, uh, this uh, subsidy. And if you when you look at the distribution of the cons- of consumption. Uh, in the population, and uh, fortunately enough, Egypt has data. So, and the data can be available for researcher. So, uh, you see that the huge, a huge chunk of these subsidies essentially go on the top uh, to the top of the distribution, mm-hmm. and the poorest segment of the population don't benefit at all from these subsidies. So, uh, international institution have they have pushed the region to reform these subsidies. Uh, to eliminate essentially uh, energy subsidies within some frame of time and um, uh, use the proceeds in part to pay for large government debt, but also to uh, start investing in um, means-tested programs, a program that target uh, the poorest segment uh, of the population. Uh, I think that the Egyptian government, I think, from what I know, the Egyptian government uh, has moved, let's say, in that direction. So the, they're going in the right direction. Um, uh, so with time, probably they would achieve something, uh, if not ideal, better than the actual uh, situation. Right. Thank you for that answer. Um, so we've, we've talked about inequality, um, I guess, in Arab countries and Lebanon. Um, I want I want to kind of like bring it closer to home. So when um, I remember being in a setting where they had people do a poll about how income inequality in Canada has changed, and I think most I think the most popular answer was that it has actually decreased in the past twenty years, when in fact it has increased. And the top twenty percent, they think they're the only group that have increased their share of national income. Um, and there's some recent research about how top income shares in Canada may be underestimated. So this is a very open question. Would you have any, any general comments regarding regarding um, income inequality within Canada? Uh, I didn't work myself mm-hmm. on uh, uh, with data on the top of the distribution, but I've read what my colleagues have done. Um, uh, and for the particular case of Canada, I know that uh, inequality in the top has increased if we compare to the 1980s. I'm not sure what happened, let's say, in the last uh, decade, in what direction it went, but the concentration of income uh, and wealth in the top uh, is going in the right, di- in the, not in the right, in the wrong direction. So there is more and more concentration of income and wealth uh, in the top of the distribution. And if you look only at the COVID crisis, so I've been following a little bit what is happening for top wealth during the crisis, many billionaires in the world are getting way richer during the crisis when 
um, average of population is going in the opposite direction. Uh, and this is, you, if, if you compare what the, the situation of, let's say, the median person in, in Canada or in the US or in any uh, developed countries in the 1980s and compare it to uh, the situation of the, the same, the relative situation of the same person in uh, nowadays, um, uh, the situation has deteriorated uh, relatively. And um, so what do we have? Uh, and now I'm entering in the field that I don't know, but um, we have the emergence of uh, proto-fascist everywhere in the world. Uh, so you have Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not sure he's a fascist, but he's certainly a proto-fascist. What comes just before fascism? Uh, if you look at uh, other leaders like uh, Bolsonaro um, and, and other uh, other people like this in the world, Marine Le Pen, uh, um, uh, inequality brings these kinds of politicians uh, on the scene. From your perspective, would increased taxation be the only, you know, feasible solution for different millionaires that are getting richer and richer? Like I know in in different Scandinavia countries, there's kind of a limit to how much people can make annually, and CEOs of companies can't make beyond that limit, and then they're required to give the rest through taxes. Is that kind of something that you see happening? Um. I'm, um, we need much higher level of taxation on top income earners. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if we take the case of the US, uh, the top level of marginal taxation, so the taxation on the last few dollars you make, was uh, as high as 90% in the 1960s, 90, And uh, it was up to 70%, 70 in the 1970s. And it's just with uh, uh, the emergence of uh, the conservative revolution with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan that this went in the uh, other direction where these top tax rate went uh, down. Uh, so I believe that we should have a very high tax rate on uh, top incomes uh, to uh, kind of stop uh, these uh, superstar uh, income earners uh, and redistribute more uh, the, 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 the prosperity uh, towards other workers. And we also need uh, taxation on wealth, uh, not just so we have taxation on uh, real estate properties. We already have that, but we need taxation on financial wealth uh, as well. Um, so, uh, if someone believes in a functioning capitalist system, you want competition and concentration of wealth, concentration of economic power doesn't go well with uh, competition. So uh, even if you're a partisan of a uh, uh, free market system, you will be worried about such concentration of wealth. Uh, it has happened in the past, in the early uh, 1900s. Um, uh, the, 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 the USA has 
have put in place a regulation to stop the concentration of market power. So something that would be the equivalent of Amazon today uh, was broken in two small pieces because they wanted they wanted to dilute the power of a single corporation. So if you have a a lot of market power, probably at the end, uh, you also have a lot of political power. And this is a very uh, scary situation if you uh, believe in democracy. I was wondering if we could go back a little bit to um, housing affordability. Um, I was kind of, um, you mentioned that it was kind of one of the first reports that CMHC has done looking at a different uh, measure for housing affordability. Why do you think that this maybe wasn't considered? Has it been considered, you know, through other organizations? And was that kind of a broad thing that just hadn't been brought here yet? Or is it a very kind of novel concept that's now just, you know, taking ground? Um, the, the report we discussed um, in the beginning, um, the, I don't know, the, what is the title of it? Um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh... I understand the question. So you're talking about uh, which report? Uh, okay, oh, okay, I, I know which one you're talking about. So the report I, I've worked on, so now I'm, I'm more comfortable. So the, 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 the report was essentially descriptive. So it was describing <laughs> the situation. Um, so it didn't have any strong policy recommendation uh, I believe that uh, housing affordability, so you, you, the three of you are in Toronto and I, I'm sure you don't need to be convinced uh, that uh, housing afford affordability is an issue in some places in Canada. And um, uh, I, once again, I think it's linked with the concentration of wealth in the top of the distribution. Um, people uh, have so much wealth they don't know what to do with it so buying real estate in a stable economy is something that is an interesting investment mm -hmm. so it pushes the price up so for the ordinary citizen for students yeah. uh, this makes uh, uh, housing unaffordable and of course uh, um, Politicians probably have tried to tackle this. I know that in British Columbia, they have uh, tried to implement uh, taxation on foreign owners. Uh, I, I didn't follow it well, but I think in Toronto, you have something similar, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure at all. But uh, it will be interesting actually to look at the distributional impact of uh, uh, these uh, policies, but because they were implemented in some places in Canada and not in other places. So we have a kind of natural experiment where you have a treated group and control group, and uh, there, it may be possible to uh, at least uh, have 
uh, an idea of the impact of such policy. Maybe they're efficient. Maybe we should think of other things. But um, uh, I think gov the government needs to invest more in uh, affordable housing than what it does at, at, at the moment. Um, uh, I think we need imagination and creativity. Uh, houseboats, uh, my, my first job, uh, the first job I got after my PhD was uh, at the Free University in Amsterdam. So they, they have houseboat uh, over there. So I've seen that. Um, it may be feasible in some part of Canada, but you need, uh, uh, so Amsterdam is built on canals. So you have a lot of places around the city for these houseboats. Uh, if you're in Toronto, it would be on the lakeshore. Uh, it will be colder probably than Amsterdam, a bit colder. I don't live in Toronto, but it's still in Canada, so it's, it should be cold. Um, I don't know. I, I have no idea how uh, these boats are. Uh, how does it feel when you live in such a boat during winter? But uh, yeah, it's certainly not the only response that will tackle this issue. A sm smaller... Ha uh, you know, people in Europe live in smaller apartments. Um, um, maybe it's it's a direction we should think of. But when we we're talking about reducing the size of apartments, typically it goes together with prices that are uh, going up. So, uh, I, I, smaller apartment may be okay for single person. Uh, as soon as uh, you are two in the, in the apartment, you need some uh, some space if you don't want to kill each other. Uh, um, so I'm not sure this would be. Uh, you know, Canada is still a very country with a lot of spaces. Uh, there should be a, a government intervention where they. They would subsidize or build themselves uh, uh, affordable apartments for uh, poor, poor and let's say low-income uh, earners uh, and families. It should be something that would be feasible. And if, um, let's say, the government uh, uh, produces housing, then it, it, it brings the price down for other. Uh, 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 houses or apartments that are on the market because it uh, increases the supply. And probably we also need to think about Airbnbs and all those uh, activities that have transformed apartments into uh, uh, something else. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because like I, I, re I remember reading about people who had like 10 or like 12 places that they were just like putting on Airbnb. So again, that kind of like turns apartment from a place of living to investment, um, which is which is kind of what's going on with the speculation from foreign buyers. So I guess that might be that might be an avenue to yeah. explore um, in terms I of like cracking down on speculation or or in creating housing as investments. This was a very interesting question, uh, a very interesting conversation. Thank you, thank you so much, Paul. Um, so thank, thank you so you much all. for your time. It was great. Thank you. Okay, thank you.
So thank you so much for listening today. Um, I hope you learned something new and you found the discussion engaging. Thanks so much, guys. Bye now. Bye. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cities Unmasked with Lumna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Elise Hodgett, and Brittany Livingston. If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.